This episode has been brought to you by Always Discreet. Head to alwaysdiscreet.com.au to learn more about bladder leak tips, management, and incredible bladder leak protection. Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I am here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back, everyone. If you're listening for the first time, thank you for joining us. I hope wherever anyone is in the world, everyone is keeping safe. We're almost there. It's December 2020. We will get there. And to keep your mind off of what might be happening in the world, wherever you are, we're going to talk about something that is not COVID related at all, as per usual. So today we're actually going to talk about what happens after you have gynecological cancer treatment and you are on the other side. So gynecological cancer treatments involve things like surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, hormonal treatments, and that's all a risk factor for a lot of types of pelvic floor dysfunctions, which I think in some literature says 30 to 50% or more people may experience pelvic floor dysfunction after having a gynecological cancer treatment. Not only is there a lack of funding to research cancers like ovarian cancer and cervical cancer, attention is most often on the treatment. Of course, we really want to perfect that. Um, But so many survivors, particularly younger females, are left with poor sexual quality of life afterwards, and not many are asking them about this or helping provide tools to help them. Out of 3 million women living with gynecological cancers, up to 70% live with temporary or permanent sexual difficulties. Our guest today, Melanie Roussin, is working to change all of this. She was diagnosed with cervical cancer at the age of 31. As part of her recovery, she left corporate life to study and work in health and is now working on her PhD, which focuses on the sexual quality of life for young gynecological cancer survivors. In this episode, she shares her journey and how she plans to use her research to help those affected in addition to a community support um, page that she has developed called Girls Rocking Cancer. All these links will be in the show notes, but Girls Rocking Cancer is a cancer support community and blog at girlsrockingcancer.com. It's also on Instagram and Facebook where they celebrate women's stories and bodies after cancer. So I hope you enjoy this amazing episode. What I would love to chat about, um, and tell me what you would love to chat about as well, but A, I know nothing about your background except what I've read, and so I would love to hear your background and your story and everything that you went through as much as you're willing to share, and then how it has kind of put you on this path, as well as talking about Girls Rocking Cancer, because that is really cool too. And kind of its mission. And I feel like you're doing 500 things. 
So I don't know. And, and her mom and, and everything. Okay. So um, basically at uh, 31 years old, I was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And at the time, I was just out of a marriage. Um, I had moved to Sydney, which was a new city for me. Um, and then I just kind of threw myself into work, I guess, you know, after the breakup. And um, I was working long hours in the corporate sector and things like that. And then I just felt really tired, you know. Um, and I would, you know, just pass out and things like that. And I was, I, I had already always been very regular with my pap test and you know, all my cervical screening exam. But for some reason, um, you know, within the space of a year, um, this, is, this is where the, the cancer really took place and it was quite aggressive for me. Um, and basically when I was diagnosed, um, I stopped work. I was very lucky to have a job that really understood. Uh, so I, you know, I stopped work, really focused on my treatment and my recovery. But I guess from there, um, my journey took me into wanting to have the answer, right? I wanted to find an answer for myself and I wanted to find an answer for the woman, but I didn't know where to start. And I guess I started with dietetics. So I did a year of study in dietetics and that was interesting, but that was not quite for me at the time. And so I moved into public health and then health promotion. And so that seemed like a good fit for me. And then I really kind of did a master of health promotion and then I started to work for a charity in cervical cancer here in Australia. And so that was really interesting because then I, I got to meet other people that are living with gynecological cancers. Um, I was part of the communication as well. Like I was monitoring all the social media and things like that, going to events and things like that. And then I started to do some lecturing for the university that I'm currently doing my PhD with um, in public health and health promotion. And, and then the topic of a PhD came about. <laughs> and I knew I wanted to do something in the space of the life after cancer, um, especially gynecological cancer, but I didn't know exactly what it would be. And so I just started to really do research just on my own terms, just to find out where's the pain, like where's the suffering for women in that life after cancer. And that's where I come across sexuality, right? But sexuality and I guess the quality of life. And so that's how I chose my topic. And then today I'm studying um, basically sexual quality of life, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically sexuality and quality of life after gynecological cancer. Where within that were you having treatment for cancer? Yes. So basically, when I left Sydney, I moved to the Sunshine Coast in Australia, where this is, that was really my space to kind of recover from the treatment. So I did all of my treatment in Sydney. Um, and I, I was lucky to have a really good oncologist. Um, at the time, I, so I had a full trachelectomy, which is the removal of my cervix. Um, and I was supposed to have actually also the removal of my uterus. But because I could also still have children, I haven't had any children at that stage. You didn't so, have your um, daughter yet. Yeah, okay. I didn't have my daughter yet. And I mean, it was a dif really difficult at the time a decision because basically the evidence suggested that I should be going to a full hysterectomy. But because um, I was still young and could have a baby, then I kept it. But there was that risk from a survival perspective. Um, and I took it. 
<laughs> I'm not someone who likes to live in fear. Obviously, I talk a lot with my oncologist about it. We felt comfortable and I kept it. And I really focused kind of on me. I focused on my recovery. I did a lot of, you know, yoga, meditation, things like that. Um, I ate really well. did all those things to really try to help my body the best I can. Um, and I recovered extremely well. My body recovered really well. And then I had a little miracle baby which I wasn't supposed to have, according to all the doctors. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she's now here with us today. And she was born extremely prematurely. She was born at 26 weeks old. Um, but she's thriving today and doing wonderful. Yes. <laughs> wow. So how long was that process from finding out that you had cancer to then having to go through treatment and surgery? Uh, it was actually quite quick. So I would say about, about six months um, because I had a really good GP at the time. And my, my cancer was located a little bit higher up the cervix. So it was actually a little bit harder to detect, but she was a really good GP. She did a really good um, pap test. And then as soon as there was something that wasn't right, I was referred to a gynecologist and to an oncologist straight away. It progressed really quickly. I got into the right hands at the right time. I was very lucky. Because <laughs> you've been a big um, advocate for women getting cervical screening tests. I think I keep seeing all of these um, articles and papers with you. And even, you know, that was, I think one of the last articles I looked at was four years ago where you were... Yes promoting having women having their cervical screening exams because um, I mean I remember in Canada it used to be every year and I remember moving here 15 years ago and it was every two years and I thought that's really that's a long time like how do you get them every two years and now it's every five years but the testing is different so that Correct. it's more specific <laughs> so people are okay to wait five years it tests different things so basically for me, the reason why I had the, the pap test every year at the time, because it was a pap test at the time, um, was because I, was, um, I had abnormal cells when I was in my early 20s. So basically, as a, I had a routine kind of checkup every year because of that. So that was helpful. Um, but yes, the, the pap test is really looking at those abnormal cells, right? I guess the HPV test that we have now is, is taking one step further back and really looking at the presence of HPV. And we know that cervical cancer take a little bit of time to develop. So that's why we have, you know, that five years um, type thing. So for me, you know, I, I had abnormal cells since my early 20s. And it was just a matter of keeping, um, you know, keeping that in check. It's eventually developed to cancer. So it doesn't, it doesn't always, most of the time it doesn't, you know, it go on its own. But for me, it, it did, yes. You would have had so much support going through the treatment. Once you finish treatment, is there still support afterwards? Actually, the whole reason why, Laurie, I'm doing this PhD is because I didn't get support. Okay, so I was During in a city it? where, yes, not at all. Oh, wow. Not at all. Yes. So it was very, it was a very lonely journey, if I can be honest. Um, I mean, obviously I saw my oncologist, um, but I, I wasn't really kind of, I didn't have a team there. You know, I didn't have obviously a, a physio and a nurse or a psychologist or, or any support like that. I wasn't part of any support group, anything like that. Um, and obviously my family was overseas. Um, I have, you know, obviously I was no longer with my husband, like all my friends were in another state. Um, yes, yeah, so it was quite a difficult journey to go on your own. And I think, you know, even if, even if we have our friends and family close by, it still can be very difficult to go through, especially for a young woman, 
you know? Um, so, because I think that, you know, we, we expect cancer to happen a lot later in life. And so when it happened in our twenties or thirties, we, we're just not equipped to deal with that, I guess. Did you end up finding anything or are you finding things now that people can use if they're going through that? Yes. So I did a little bit of a Google search at the time, and that's how I came across the Australian Cervical Cancer Foundation, which is a charity that, that I volunteered and worked for for a few years. Um, and so that was specific for cervical cancer. That was very helpful. Right. Um, and I think now with social media, we have a lot more support. Right. We have Facebook group. We have communities. Um, that was a big reason why I created my own community. Um, Girls Rocking Cancer, because I wanted to, I wanted to give women some hope and some support and really celebrate our stories, celebrate our journeys and celebrate our bodies because it's really past, past the survival. There is a whole life there to be lived and it's, it can be very difficult um, to live with this new normal, this new body that, that, we've, that, that we have after cancer. <laughs> well, that's right. So a lot of the focus is put on getting through it. Then you yes. get through it and you're sort of back to normal or like what, you know, obviously every surgery, every experience is going to have something different that you have to deal with in the end. But what did you feel like was missing? So you finish treatment and then you're technically normal and everything's okay, but not everything is okay. So what did mm -hmm. you feel like people didn't tell you about, you didn't know about that you still had to struggle with once you were finished treatment? So I guess, um, I guess the focus is very much on treatment, as you just said. And I think we do quite a good job at it in Australia, you know, in terms of managing the survival rate, right? But as we have more and more people surviving cancer, then those survivors are left a little bit in the dark in terms of what does that life look like? And I think now we're starting to understand that it's not just adding years to life, but it's about the quality of those years, right? I guess the support that we're looking for after gynecological cancer is um, certainly from a sexuality perspective, because, um, you know, a lot of the treatment will change our body, um, our sexual response and things like that. Um, also for women, it could be they go into an early menopause. And so this is really hard to manage because, you know, we don't expect that at an early age. Um, so managing the, the symptoms of it and things like that. Um, also, if we've lost fertility. So, you know, this is very difficult for a lot of women, the loss of fertility. And the, the psychological aspect as well of, of losing some of those um, body parts, you know, or the treatment. So, for example, you know, um, when we have a red skull hysterectomy, we can feel, you know, for example, the loss of womanhood and things like that. And that might, that might seem a little bit strange for, you know, for um, an oncologist or a gynecologist to think about because they're very much focused on that treatment. But there is a big psychological impact. There's an impact on our relationship as well, right? So for me, for example, I was single and trying to date again. So A, I have to learn how to date again after being married for very young and married for many years. Um, so that's, that's a bit difficult, right? Um, but also for married couple, it's, it's the same. It's difficult, you know, how, how do you negotiate sexuality and communicate about it and just talk about those, those issues. 
also obviously from a pelvic floor perspective you know there is um, a really high risk of pelvic floor disorder with a lot of those treatments and so you know our surgery radiotherapy chemotherapy hormone replacement all those things can influence you know things in the pelvic floor you know so pelvic floor prolapse I mean obviously you know a lot about it but urinary tract infection or, or problem uh, fecal incontinence as well sexual response there's, there's so many problems there and we've just really left on our own <laughs> to deal with all of that. Well, even yeah. <laughs> the, the physical changes that you were saying with some of the surgeries, you know, might shorten the vagina. And then, so if yes. you've got a male partner or if you have a female partner and you're using, you know, different toys, instead of having, you know, eight to 10 centimeters, you may now have six or seven. And I, you know, how much do people prepare you for that 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 might be an issue afterwards. They don't. And um, currently I'm doing my interview with my young gynecological cancer survivors. And one of the thing I hear is, one of my question is, has anyone spoken to you, you know, before or after treatment about the impact of your treatment on your sexuality and quality of life? And across the board, it's a no, across the board. And obviously, you know, I'm still going through my interview, but I find that really interesting that that was not just my experience. It's just it's not something that tends to be discussed a lot. And it's also, I guess, the reference as well, like maybe referral to other, um, you know, I mean, we didn't, I don't know. <laughs> you know, as you go to treatment, you don't know that you can go and see a pelvic floor physio or occupational therapist so, or that there might be a nurse who can help you. Um, we don't, I did, I have never uh, been told about um, vaginal dilation as well. So that's not something that was discussed as well with me uh, to help lengthening my vagina and things like that. Um, obviously, women that are going to pelvic radio, radio, um, uh, radiotherapy, that's a big uh, problem as well. So really to, to help manage the side effects of that treatment. I think to the hard thing with sex, which I just um, did a podcast recently talking about um, sexual activity and low back pain with another physiotherapist yes. who deals with all musculoskeletal conditions. And we talked about how it's one of those activities that's, you know, technically an ADL. So an activity of daily life, even though it's not, you know, often daily, maybe for some people, um, but it's something, you know, like brushing our teeth and that things that, that somebody often needs to consider and have help with, but it's often brushed aside and forgotten about and health professionals I don't know if they just feel like maybe someone else will ask or deal with it, or they just don't even think to ask because it's not something that they're comfortable with, or they think that it might be a problem. So then it, then it becomes whose problem is it or whose area is it? And then it then becomes no one's area. Yes. And, and I think this is interesting because I think this is part of the solution. What you're talking about is looking at it as a multidisciplinary team, potentially. So rather than, you know, everyone working in their own area separately, like, okay, so here's the patient, how can we work together? And um, I mean, maybe that discussion needs to come from the oncologist, gynecologist, and maybe it doesn't, maybe it's a nurse, maybe it's a, it's a physiotherapist, maybe it's an occupational therapist so really looking at that multidisciplinary team is uh, something that comes out as a recommendation quite strongly in the evidence yeah I was going to say <laughs> that that's coming out of your your research and, and that's so yes. with your research what 
So it was your experience that kind of drove you to all these questions that you wanted to have answered. And we know with research, we can't answer everything because yes. <laughs> it will take us forever. Yes. So what are, are there any kind of specific things that you really want to tie down with the, the research that you've started doing, knowing that maybe you'll be doing this for the next 20 years? <laughs> Yes. So I guess the first stage of my research was to look, to do a systematic review of all the evidence and to really understand the factors, so the, the causes and the things that drive sexuality and quality of life for women after gynecological cancer. Okay. So I think we have a better understanding now about, you know, the underlying problems and, and causes, right? Now we're looking at solution. What can we do about it? Okay, and so this is the spice of my research where I'm really looking at strategies and what are the strategies that especially our young gynecological cancer survivors, so I'm looking at those women who were diagnosed 45 years or under. And the reason I'm looking at our young, younger uh, women is because they are often um, left a little bit in, in the dark, okay, because often they, it's, it, again, a lot of the gynecological cancer, we're expecting older women to have them. And, but our younger survivors deal with things like menopause and, and lymphedema and all of those, those things that really make, um, may really affect the quality of life. This is, so this is, at the moment, I'm really looking at solution. And I want to put an intervention, I want to put a programs together um, to, to help to solve the problem. That's, that's, the, that's the purpose of my research. <laughs> so when will we have these solutions? <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, one of the things that certainly uh, pelvic floor physio can help is managing the symptoms. So we know that if we manage the symptoms and the side effect of treatment, we will help uh, to improve sexuality and quality of life. You know, one of those is lymphedema that has a huge impact on sexuality and quality of life. You know? um, and I mean, obviously, from a sexual response perspective, there are a lot of things uh, we can do. I mean, even if we tell um, patients, that they can use, for example, you know, vaginal dilator, often we don't tell them how to use them, you know, what happens if they don't use them, um, to use a good quality lubricant, you know, like really practical advice. Um, this is, I think, what women need, or that's what I'm hearing anyway. Because <laughs> you said you're at the port point where you're interviewing women and asking yes. them questions. So how many yep. women are you interviewing? Are you hoping to talk to to get all this information from? Um, I mean, it's always about recruitment, right? So because my community, the community that I've created on social media is worldwide, I get a lot of interest from, you know, the US and just different part of the world. At the moment, I'm, I'm looking at Australian women specifically. Okay, so obviously, you know, um, um, recruitment is always something that, you know, we need assistance with. So I guess it depends how many women I can recruit for the purpose of this. At the moment, it's going really, really well. And I guess the answer is until data saturation. So until that point where I find that I'm not finding anything new. My guess would be, you know, a good 15, 20 interview, uh, maybe up to 30 interview would be great, um, just to really get that depth. Is, is there anything specific that you are surprised that you're hearing from the women that you're interviewing or asking? It's not about sex. So the end, so sexuality is, a, is actually not just about sex. And I think this is the thing is when we talk about sexuality, especially if women are not in that headspace right now, they just say, I'm not going there. Right. And so what I'm finding is that it's not just about um, sex. It's about how we feel in our body. And I think this is really like body image is really 
part of it's 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 a big part of the pain so you know often we feel that um in a foreign body you know our, our body has changed and it may it may have scars but it may also be scars that we cannot see but we may grieve part of our body and especially you know some women express uh, feeling like a failure you know if they're not able to have um you know these sexual relations with their partners and things like that but just also just daily living you know i mean sometimes some women says you know i'm not able to work anymore or i'm not able to uh, perform some of the duties or some of the things that i used to do you know so i guess that's that's what we're looking at you know how how can we help improve this so then women can can go back to some form of normal, whatever that looks like for them. <laughs> yeah, I love that you just said that it's not just about sex, that, you know, sexual um, intimacy or sexuality has to do with how you feel in your own body. And when you go through something like this, um, something as big as this, that you can feel complete, like a completely different person what like other than finding um, communities for support and help do you know of any other strategies that women can use to help them feel more comfortable with the new body this is part of this phase of research so i'm still going through through that so maybe we'll do another yeah. interview you when I get the result. But, but, but at the moment, what we're looking at is, um, I think, you know, social media play a big role as well, because, you know, we have all those pictures, we have all those filters, it's not real. So I think, you know, that's why I created a community where I actually have real pictures of real women <laughs> that have gone through it. And also thinking that it's a journey, right? So it's a journey to accept this new, this new body that we are in. Uh, but I think what I hear is a lot of women don't feel sexy and things like that. Um, and obviously that impact their relationship as well. Um, we know that um, the quality of the relationship play a big role. So for example, you know, uh, with a partner. So if the partner is really supportive, that's, that's huge for women. So I think, you know, it's, it's thinking about how can we support a woman, but also with their partners. You know, I think that's really, really important. There's good evidence to suggest that we get better results when we do that. Uh, but coming back to what you're talking about with social media, that I think who you follow and the images that you see and the body images, like the, the cool thing is we can control that. We get to choose who we follow. Yes. The more people that you follow that are diverse and different um, and all different body shapes and sizes and stories, I think it helps to keep everyone a lot more well-rounded. But like you said, that's the girls rocking cancer. A big part is to show real bodies and women who've been through this before and hearing their stories. Um, what's kind of the, you know, is that the big kind of mission with Girls Rocking Cancer is just to highlight the stories so that women feel supported when they're going through very similar things? Yes, at the moment. Obviously, this will evolve, you know, as I'm developing this program and things like that. I'm taking um, those, those people on the journey with me. But that's, that's very much to create a, co a support community, you know, a sisterhood of some sort, if you'd like. <laughs> And, and it's about the conversation. So, you know, having a conversation about our health down there, you know, whether we're talking about prevention without, you know, or the life after cancer, we don't talk about it. You know, we don't talk about, you know, our period or, 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 or having pain, you know, um, it's the same, you know, as a new mother, 
you know, there is, I mean, there's a little bit more for mothers, I think, but, but there's still a lot of, it's just a way to generate conversation. So then women feel less alone. When you are finished everything in, what did you say? How long was it going to take you to, cause you've gone part-time. So how much more time do you have? Um, I would have about a year and a half. Left? Yeah, left. Yes. <gasps> That's not, I was thinking three or four years. Okay. So once you are finished, you're going to continue to evolve the solutions that I guess that you're kind of finding and picking out from all the research. Is that the plan? Uh, the plan is the last phase of my PhD is actually the intervention that I want to um, put together. And then I'm going to pilot test it. So by the time I finish my PhD, it will be, it will, I will have the program together. Yes, that's the idea. Everyone should know this by now. As a physiotherapist, I do not believe in telling women with urinary incontinence just to wear a pad or a liner and keep pushing through. I also don't believe that they have to stop doing the exercise and activities that they love forever in order to manage it. I know how important pelvic floor exercises are. I know how important modifications to risk factors are. And I know how important education is in helping to treat urinary incontinence. But I also know how extremely important promoting physical activity is. We have the highest quality evidence demonstrating that physiotherapists can greatly improve or often cure incontinence. But I also know that this management takes time. And for some women, while it might improve their leaking by 80%, sometimes they will still have leaking. Or there will be a subset of women that we can't help enough. This is why I feel incontinence pads and liners still have a place and I'm honored to be asked to partner up with Always Discreet to help break the stigma around incontinence, empower and support women to start conversations about bladder leakage, provide the best information on management and also provide options to decrease embarrassing accidents that they may continue to have. So follow the hashtag WeAlwaysGotYou which is we, W-E-E, join in on the conversation and as professionals continue to educate women about how we can help. I think that really, um, that really shaked things up a little for me is that I had a baby and that wasn't an easy pregnancy. That was a really high risk pregnancy uh, with a lot of bleeding. Um, actually did a lot of kind of hem- hemorrhaging as well through mm-hmm. the pregnancy. During so, the pregnancy. During the pregnancy. So a lot of kind of... T- I'm in hospital and obviously my baby being born at 26 weeks, lots of time in hospital with her. And, and so I had had a lot more checkup because even the actual delivery wasn't a, um, what wasn't a normal type delivery. So, you know, um, yeah, it was an emergency type situation, a classical C-section quite, um, yeah, it, there, there was a lot involved in the actual delivery of it. Um, so I, I'm just going to look at it a little bit more closely. I mean, my oncologist now has talked about the potentially uh, the time for me to have a full radical hysterectomy. And this is, this is interesting at this stage of my research, because when we had that conversation, he said, um, said I think now that you no longer want to have babies, I think we should take away your uterus, you know, to really remove any chances of the cancer coming back. But it's been eight years. So literally, you know, uh, my survival rate is pretty good at this stage. <laughs> and, and then, you know, obviously this came with maybe a bit of a lack of understanding potentially of all the things that we just talked about. And 
um, you know, if I kind of look at the risk versus the benefit, I mean, if I have a pretty good survival rate at this stage, let's face it, um, why would we put my body to more harm than it has gone through, you know? And to be honest, I've been uh, stitched a fair bit <laughs> below the belt. And I'm kind of, you know, and obviously understanding all the, um, all the, the aftermath of a potential red school hysterectomy. And I mean, don't get me wrong, if there is a real chances of cancer coming back, that's the first thing that I will do. But, but you know, if the, the chances are pretty low, um, like I, I mean, under 1%, I just don't feel it's worth that exercise. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. I'm doing a bit of a kind of a, a pelvic ultrasound, just waiting for the test and just see whether there's anything there that could suggest that it would be a good course of action. And I think that's kind of what I want to advocate for women. It's just about making an informed consent. You know, it's about understanding your body, getting to know your body, um, and just understanding the, I guess, the risk and the benefit of a treatment. And I think that's that's happening. Sometimes we're just such in survival mode that we go through the treatment, and then those discussions don't happen until a lot later. You know. Um, so I really want to kind of encourage all the medical professional to have that conversation with their patient before the treatment happens. And, and then really the follow-up after that, the care and bringing different people from, from that team that I was talking about before. I think that's very important. So other than the research that you're doing, because you've done a systematic review, have you found any other support or solutions after treatment? Or are, is this kind of all up to you right now? <laughs> no, I think, I think we know that, for example, you know, we, we know what needs to be done. So for example, you know, there is good um, in some areas. So we know, for example, for vaginal dilation, we know that if women are told to, how to use them and are guided through the process, because there's also a lot of fear, right? Like fear of sex, fear of bleeding, um, all that trauma you know, so just having someone to help you through that can make a huge difference, you know, and you'll be surprised how these are a big problem, but you'll be surprised how a little bit of information or a little bit of support make a big difference, you know, but for example, often is um, to show women how to do something, you know, and I think that's why physio are so great, because they often show you how to do something and an occupational therapist the same. But I think that's that's really helpful because because it is a time where where women can feel very overwhelmed if they've gone to chemo as well. Often they talk about that chemo brain. This is I, I just I forget my keys all the time. I put my keys in my fridge. I just, you know, so we don't process things the same way as well. We, we you know, it's, we're tired. We're overwhelmed. Um, so I think we just need to have some compassion and understanding and just take our time, maybe have videos, just resources to, to help women through that time can be useful. Is there any um, plans for you uh, afterwards, sort of when you're done research and you're, you're working on the rest of um, the projects that you want to work on to take things, you, you mentioned videos, but are there plans to take things online and more information? Yes, I'd like to. I'd like to. And obviously that needs to be supported by research. I mean, there have been some interventions done, done online that have worked really, really well. Especially one area when it comes to sexuality is mindfulness. So mindfulness is quite important, especially it plays a huge role in desire. Okay, because we're so stressed out, we try to do so many things at the same time, especially then if we've got the, you know, that, that, that cancer coming on top, it's just, 
you know, and if we have a family and things like that, there's just so much going on. So the idea is, you know, I think one way to be more present in our body is to develop mindfulness and not just mindfulness when it comes to sexuality, mindfulness in life, trying to be more present is one way. And so I think, you know, there is an online intervention and, and more than one that there's a few online intervention that have worked quite well when it comes to mindfulness. And I think, you know, I think there is a place um, for a lot of online things, you know, I mean, I know I'm doing, you know, um, Pilates on Zoom at the moment, you know, to strengthening that, that pelvic floor and all of that after baby and <laughs> everything that has happened in that area but there is but there is many many things that I think we can come and teach women online and I think that would be uh, very very um, helpful in the future and also to reach out to people outside of cities because actually I have some of um, the participants in my studies that that are in remote um, communities and uh, you know outside of the big cities and they said that I don't know if my problem is just because I live in a rural area but I just I couldn't find the support I was looking for so I think, you know, this is the thing we can do with online support group or, or, or um, you know, type platforms to, to try to reach out to people um, that might not have access to that help. Especially in Australia, because everyone lives along the coastlines, like there's, but there are people living, you know, a few hours yes. inland. It's so different to North America, where if you drove you know, East Coast to West Coast, you stop at a service center every 200 kilometers and there's just people throughout the whole center. Whereas here in the middle, it's so spaced out, but there's so many people in the middle that also need help. Um, you were talking Correct. about the um, mindfulness. Um, uh, I know Headspace is one of, you know, I just got the full access to it. Um, and they have some really kind of brilliant little, I love now that they've changed it to, there's one minute activities you can do or three yes. minutes. So it's super fast and it's only, you know, $9 a month. I think that's for like the year plan, but they even have the free version. Um, and I know mm -hmm. what we just did, we did a podcast recently with um, Dr. Lori Brado, who's also Canadian, who I'm assuming you know all, all her research, because again, it's the mindfulness and the desire. Um, and I know that they will be coming out with, with more things and I think video content too. So there, there is some stuff out there, but it's exciting to, to know and that there will be more for people as well. And so, yes, I would say one thing that I hear a lot is, um, and, and I, you know, I, I interview women mainly because I'm working in gynecological cancer, right? But, um, but it seems that sometimes we're not that great at accepting help. Mm. And I think, you know, my advice would be, this is a time where we need to be able to accept help. After, after gynecological cancer, I, I think it's so important. I think for friends and family, and um you know carer and all of that i think the best help is actually practical help you know uh, so you know if someone is going through treatment or something like that is you know um, watch the kids or bring a meal or those things can all help um but i think you know it's, it's really important to accept the help and i think it's it, um, my wish is that we start working together um as medical professional um to to really look at the the years that it takes to recover from something like that. And I think that's, that's my message today is that cancer does not end the day that you finish treatment. Okay. 
that's the, just the start of a new chapter. It's and and then in that recovery, um, we we need to we need to do better. We need to to work together and provide better support, and also looking at not just the physical health, but just the psychological, the social, the emotional, all of those things um, that that play a role for women. Thank you. I am so excited that you are doing research in this area and that um, so many more people will have so much more help in the future. So if anyone is able to help her research, I will put links in the show notes. She's currently recruiting women living in Australia who are aged between 18 years and 45 years who are pre or perimenopausal at their gynecological cancer diagnosis. She's doing one-on-one interviews through Zoom. And again, there'll be more information on the show notes as well as the Instagram page. And one thing that we didn't talk about, which again is really cool, uh, which I will have her back on to talk about this. Uh, If anyone has been listening to me for a while or if you're a member of the patron-only podcasts, we talk a lot about pelvic pain and we've talked about vaginal dilators. She's actually in the process of manufacturing her own set of body-safe vaginal dilators specifically for women post-pelvic pelvic cancer, but helpful for other conditions as well, along with resources to show women how to use them safely and get into a routine. So you need to, she is on Twitter, follow her on Twitter, on Instagram. It's really exciting what she's doing and I can't wait to speak to her again. I hope everyone has a great day.